Hello, everyone. Welcome to Word with Dave Clay. There is this old Saturday Night Live skit. <laughs> the skit's old. The program it was on is old, and I can't remember <laughs> the actual actor or the character that was portrayed. But it goes something like this. You know he's a liar. It's obvious he's a liar. Uh, he parrots back much of what has been spoken to him. But he uses <laughs> what we will discuss in today's podcast as disfluency to an art. Uh, the pauses, the breaks, allowing someone else to fill in the gaps. <laughs> the comedic part of it uh, is basically the other person creates a story, a narrative, um, as they are speaking to this character. And they at first don't even <laughs> realize it. And then somewhere along the way, the absurdity of it strikes you. They're writing the story. They're telling the story. They're having a one-sided conversation. <laughs> the other person is just strategically allowing them to fill in all the proverbial gaps, including not only subject, <laughs> but opinion uh, sort of gaps. Psychology Today, December of 2022, the article is entitled, Well, mm, you know you're saying more than you think. We may not like to hear placeholder words, but we get more information from them than we realize. By Hans Rutger Foster. Spontaneous speech is messy. We stumble over words, lose our line of thought, mid-sentence, slow down to buy time to find that word we are looking for and produce tons of so-called placeholder words, placeholder words, like um, well, and you know. Together, these are known as disfluencies. And even though there is some evidence that higher disfluency rates correlate with lower verbal intelligence, we all do it. When you ask people to judge others by their speech, a trend emerges. Listeners dislike disfluency. Slow talkers produce loads of ums and pauses are generally perceived as less charismatic and less intelligible. This has been found in correlation studies comparing natural speech from different talkers, but also in confirmatory experiments. Work from our own lab showed that the same clip of a speaker may receive different scores from listeners depending on how many pauses are artificially inserted or how much the speech is slowed down. These effects go beyond acoustic indicators the absence of natural hand gestures, for example, can make a speaker sound more accented. Observed in ratings of speakers' various personality traits, these effects have real-life consequences. Slow down the speech of a male talker, and study shows that he's less likely to be successful in drawing female romantic interest. Job applicants who produce many disfluencies are less likely to be hired. Listeners also draw on um as a lie detector. When two people play a competitive game and one tells the other that the treasure is behind the um castle, 
the other player is more likely to look behind the princess. To avoid such reactions, audio editors routinely cut disfluencies out of radio interviews and podcasts, known as the umming. And public speakers strive to avoid placeholders. In all of the recorded inaugural speeches by U.S. presidents between 1940 and 1996, there is not a single um or uh. But science tells us there may, even, there may be even more to disfluencies. Pauses and predictions. Disfluencies do not occur in random positions in sentences. Ums typically occur right before more difficult or low-frequency words. Um, carburetor is an example. Because most people over the course of their lives have had plenty of experience with this non-arbitrary distribution of disfluencies, they actually use this implicit knowledge when listening to disfluent speech. That is, they use ums to predict what word will follow next. Imagine you're having dinner with a friend at a restaurant and there are four items on the table. A knife, a glass, a napkin, and a wine decanter. Your friend turns to you and says, could you hand me the mmm? What would you assume they want? Since it's unlikely they would hesitate before such common words as knife, glass, or napkin, chances are you'll look at the decanter, pick it up, and ask, you mean this? This is exactly what we demonstrated through controlled eye tracking studies in our lab. When participants are presented with four objects on a screen and hear spoken instructions to click on the mmm, they tend to look at the lowest frequency objects. Apparently, listeners hear the mmm and predict that an uncommon word is most likely to follow next. Such predictions, though, reflect more than just simple associations between disfluencies and difficult words. Listeners are actively taking the perspective of the speaker. For example, we showed that when you hear a non-native speaker say the same sentence as the above, but with a thick foreign accent, click on the E. Listeners do not show a preference for looking at low-frequency objects. Presumably, this is because the listener assumes non-native speakers may have as much trouble coming up with the English word for a common object like a knife as for more unusual ones. As such, their disfluencies are less predictive. In another experiment, listeners were presented with an atypical speaker who consistently produced disfluencies before simple words. Knife and never before difficult words. Initially, participants displayed the natural predictive strategy, looking at uncommon objects upon hearing mmm. However, as more time went by, they gained experience with this atypical distribution of disfluencies. Listeners started to demonstrate the reverse predictive behavior. They tended to look at simple objects when hearing the talker say mmm. That is, they learn to adjust their natural predictions to the disfluency behavior of the talker at hand. These findings represent further evidence that the human brain is a predictive machine. We continuously try to anticipate what will happen next. In spoken communications, we draw upon prior experience to try to predict what word will follow and adjust these predictions on a talker-by-talker basis. 
What may be distracting and unexpected for one talker may be conventional and expected for another. Not all disfluencies are created equal. Again, Hans Rutger Bosker, PhD, who leads the Speech Perception and Audiovisual Communications, SPEAC acronym, research group at Radboud University, the Netherlands. Well, mm, you know you're saying more than you think. We may not like to hear placeholder words, but we get more information from them than we realize. Psychology Today, December of 2022. Now, outside of (laughs) explaining in more empirical or research terms, uh, what was the premise of the Saturday Night Live skit? Uh, and as would be taken then to the level of absurdity, which is quite typical of Saturday Night Live skits, it's funny. It's interesting. Makes you think. <laughs> Makes you ponder. The joke is certainly on you as much as you're laughing at them. Because really, essentially, what that captures is that we're more interested in creating the narrative at times than we are actually, conversationally, and somebody else is either giving us their narrative or should we even be a little bit more generous allowing them to contribute? Now, whether this is good or bad when it comes to social relationships, I don't know. It does seem it puts us at a great disadvantage when it comes to maybe there's a bit of altruistic behavior in this. Certainly that idea of filling in the gaps, the placeholder words, Uh, trying to assist the other communicator, uh, the person we're talking to on the other side of that communication, the agent of communication. Uh, Maybe that's altruistic. Maybe it's pro-social. Maybe it's just because we care about other people. I don't know. Stack that up against the sort of narcissistic, egocentric... um, What would be the word of it? Uh, We're the center of the universe kind of perspective that goes along with us being willing to, when we don't and can't get the right word from that other person, to just monopolize the conversation, to steal it. And with that, then, to construct our own, or create or construct our own stories. (laughs) Tell our own stories. Um, Talk about us. Um... Phenomenologically so, we're the center of it all. (laughs) That doesn't sound too altruistic. And maybe it does reflect part of what seems to be an essential hang-up when it comes to relationships. We want to have relationships with others, but we're not sure we want to have relationships with others for much more than narcissistic inclinations. We want to have them because we love seeing ourselves and other people. I I don't know that that makes us necessarily uh, wrong. If we all do it, then it's probably one of those human characteristics. And, you know, you could say, well, it's all uh, with an intention to somehow in some sociopathic way take advantage or harm, you, you could assume a, a really awful or evil sort of motive 
that comes out of selfishness. But I think to some extent we all would probably say, well, no, that's just innocence. You know, or say it in an innocent sort of manner. That's just the way everybody is. But it also highlights the fact, though, that in doing that, we do set ourselves up to be manipulated. (laughs) You can tell somebody who is really either quite adept and cognizant of, aware of this phenomenon that we're speaking of today on the podcast, this human inclination tendency, and allow you, they, would allow you to tell them everything. You could could tell them where your most important treasures lie, where, where your most vulnerable spots are, where your greatest weaknesses are, what you would aspire to or desire the most, what you need, what you want, and even to some extent, what you're willing to pay for it. Uh, as much value, what it might be worth, if not only to you, maybe to them, depending on what they could do with that information. Um, That would be evil. That would be calculated. But that would also be sociopathic. And there's many people who are indeed sociopathic or have either intuitively come to this awareness or have had at an intuitive level an awareness and then somehow stylized it. Uh, I suppose you could say there's an adaptive dimension to it. Uh, They get a lot of stuff that way. They manipulate a lot of situations, circumstances that way. But if you tell everybody everything you know, don't be so naive as to not expect them in some manner unless they're just really, again, altruistic. (laughs) A highest level of either innocence Uh, themselves, the other person, or you know they're really not out to harm you in any way, uh, you're going to run some risk. Now, again, getting back to relationships, that's a peril. That's very disruptive because we're approaching it in a selfish dimension. We want to talk about ourselves. We want it to be one-sided and it leaves us vulnerable either to just in that way, miscommunications, breakdown of communications, lack of true empathy and perspective, understanding the other person, or maybe being fleeced, somehow stolen from or taken advantage of. But I would want to say this as well. The idea of intimacy and full disclosure, that's probably not such a bad thing when it comes to relationships, at least for certain relationships, because that's the essential element of really just that. (laughs) Feeling as if the other person knows you and you know them. You get close. You discover their intentions are really not to harm you. Their intentions are very pure. (laughs) They don't want to hurt you. And should they, it's going to be for lack of an awareness, not because they were using that data or that information or with some intention in mind, they were just that, mining for data so that they could somehow, in some self-serving capacity, use it against you, capability that that brings them, use it against you. So we want to be open, we want to have that level of communication that may be, again, a pro-social sort of inclination, 
in the human creation, creature. But at the same time, we probably need to then, if not do away with that, in some manner or way, measure it. And how do you do that? (laughs) You have to at least be willing to shut up now and then. (laughs) You have to at least be willing to, with some considered intention, find out about the other person. I don't want to encourage suspicion or hypervigilance where everybody, a bit of paranoia, everybody could use something against you, everybody could harm you, and certainly we could easily explain where that comes from because that comes from real life experiences where people have done such a thing, the sociopathic side of that. But when it comes to calibrating relationships and when it comes to intimacies and when it comes to people you've determined that you want to go a bit further, maybe you're not entirely sold out on the notion you could go all the way in terms of full disclosure. You could let them see the entirety of all those, again, things that you possess that are most valuable to you, your prized possessions, your self-esteem, the keys to your kingdom, uh, your innermost safe places, your vulnerabilities, your weaknesses, as well as your strengths. Maybe you just need to test that a bit, to talk it out a bit, to recognize placeholder words doesn't necessarily mean their intention to lie. It just means they're having themselves a very difficult time opening up completely. And maybe they've learned the hard way themselves. Maybe they're pacing it a bit. And I think there is certainly an adaptive aspect of that. It makes common sense to slow it down. It makes common sense don't to tell don't tell a total stranger your life history and everything there is about you, even though you feel real comfortable with them, or all the walls have come down, and finally you met that one person. You could tell them everything. I think sometimes people see that too as, as strangers. The great appeal is, and they won't ever you won't ever see them again. Well, that may be true, but you might. And depending on their intentions, you may have just been become a mark. <laughs> they come back to you. Uh, they may be running some sort of scam on you. And uh, that's what sociopathic, antisocial, criminal sorts of individuals do. But are we glad psychotherapists aren't that way? <laughs> That psychotherapy is not intention to do that, but it is sort of like that. Of course, if I'm using a lot of placeholder words, or if I demonstrate a lot of disfluency in conversation with you, you you might legitimately question, well, where's that coming from in me as your psychological counselor? But if I'm not too preoccupied either with my own disclosure... Self-disclosure. Or, in some ways, manipulating you or taking advantage of you in this sort of nefarious or evil sort of terms, even if it would be instrumentally to some good intention. I don't want to trick you. I don't want to con you. I don't want to manipulate. I certainly do not want to use something against you. 
But if I do it well, and I am not inclined then to have so much writing on it, or if there is a narrative, it's not my narrative, it's yours. Or if there is some dimension of narrative that I'm contributing to as we have it, this discussion, and hopefully psychotherapy is more conversational. I would not want it to be a monologue, or I would not want it to be a lecture when people come see me. But I am contributing ideas and thoughts, and I'm going to do that in as unobtrusive a fashion or manner as possible. And I'm going to do that with at least some degree of common dimension. I'm human. You're human. We can be relatable on those points. I can even use that in some sort of interpersonal way to demonstrate some of the very things that I'm hoping to encourage in you by exampling that with some integrity, of course, in mind and me. But I, in all of those ways, am... The safest place that you could come to and completely open up to a stranger. It's sort of like <laughs> unprotected sex. Why would you do that if you know, even if you would not know, but the possibility exists that you could acquire some sort of communicable disease, uh, that there's potential harm that could come to you <laughs> regarding more specifically the situation and circumstance in which that occurs. You don't know anything about the person, the personality type. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I'm not sure where that example comes from other than it was the first thing that came to my mind. But that's an example. It's having that intimacy in a physical sort of way Without emotional connections. Well, it's the same thing, though, when you're talking to strangers and you're revealing all those other intimacies, maybe not in a sexual sort of way or physical intimacy in that sort of dimension, but you are having that sort of an encounter, you're subject to communicable diseases. They could use that against you. And why wouldn't you at least afford yourself some protection? I don't, I don't know if you're ever going to know entirely sure until the relationship that you have with this person is one that's established in some degree of progressive, I want to say progression, of kind of establishing foundation, uh, establishing trustworthiness, uh, instant rapport does not guarantee safety. <laughs> because they may actually be not, not be contributing much on their side at all. It may be <laughs> SNL. Skit. They're just letting you fill in all the gaps. And strategically, they're using disfluencies because they know the human inclination is to want to fill in the gaps. And maybe to get to know another person or help another person. But even then, we can be so blinded by telling our story that we're not paying attention to how absurd it's gotten. We're not really talking about them at all. You're spilling your guts to a stranger. Fortunately, psychotherapy is not like that. There's all of the legal and ethical considerations that go along with that. That's all part of licensures. That should go without saying. But it is important. Those are definitions that are applied to the relationship. 
But it's maybe because of those definitions and because I don't have that emotional investment as you do. It's not about me. It's about you. We're not going to be talking about me. We're going to be talking about you. You get that great benefit. And it's safe. It's secure. And it gives you some feedback. Now, I know that common everyday conversations do not necessarily have to be, at least subject-wise, what you're talking about, uh, the same as what you discuss in psychotherapy. And probably some people with that idea of protection in mind just don't, as they used to say, air their dirty laundry. They just don't tell anybody about that personal stuff. But it's an interesting thing. When you start to win the confidences of another person, and as I mentioned earlier, they get that place where they're telling you everything. It's hard when you're there and you're the one that's doing all the talking to always know, maybe I've said too much. Maybe I've told too much. Maybe I've revealed too much until it's too late. And should that have happened, you can't take it back. You can only count on again whether or not the other person is, has evil intentions, is either a decent person, a good person, uh, just themselves kind of like you, um, or maybe in some ways they really are manipulating, conniving, <laughs> contriving, and would want to take that data and use it against you. I would like to think that that level of intimacy, as much as reserved for more vetted relationships, where over time, in a progressive sort of manner, you kind of test the foundation, uh, you prove the person in ways of consistency, not only in a moment, but over time, you know what they're going to do or not do for the most part. You might even kind of make either a, a obviously stated, overtly stated, or maybe more implicit sort of commitment. Well, you know, we're friends, and friends can tell each other everything, or, or we're significant others, and this is really what we're supposed to do. But you get that great benefit from psychological counseling. <laughs> except you don't have to take me home. I don't live with you. And I certainly am never going to use that against you in any sort of ill-intentioned way to self-service on my part. Looking at it through that lens, however, lets us get a glimpse of or allows us to get a glimpse of or catch a glimpse of then maybe just how productive, positive, affirming, valuable, beneficial. That type of relationship could be. Maybe it is for those individuals who would never tell a single other soul their deepest, darkest secrets, their insecurities, their inadequacies, their fears, their vulnerabilities. Maybe they have a few that they've told to, that too. But again, it's not as pure as, as I'm trying to describe it in contrast. The significant other might be quite credible and certainly willing to in a reciprocal sort of dimension go back and forth and share and, and allow you to share and, and you can build that over time. But still, they may not 
be able to see the full picture because they're still looking at it through that sort of phenomenological lens of their own egos. <laughs> their world, everything revolves around them. It's, they're still, every, all of us, every one of us tends to be egocentric. It's just what we are. We're subjective first. Then we take in data objectively. <laughs> and, and then we make it a big point to do that. Well, I recognize I'm going to see this as I would see this. That's who I am. That's my ego. That's my identity. But I do want to see it through somebody else's eyes on occasions. and I want to see it as objectively as possible. And Though again, in more normal circumstances, even with significant others, they can't be devoid completely of the subjective. <laughs> Psychological counselors are sworn to that. At least an oath-wise, that's our commitment. And that's what we try to do. We work very hard <laughs> at being objective. And applying nothing less than, as with science, that objective lens. Not only in, in terms of what we're discovering, not only in terms of formation of our hypothesis, but testing it. And then offering possible solutions along the way. We want it to be likewise, evidence-based, research-based, empirically sound, objective findings. You're not going to probably get that from many others, if any. And you're certainly not going to get that from somebody who allows you to fill in all the gaps. All the disfluencies. <laughs> because they may be quite charismatic and they may be quite good listeners. And, but the absurdity of that is they really don't care about you. They're that way because they don't care about you. <laughs> With a psychological counselor, we care about you, and we're still that way. <laughs> so it's, again, positive regard. We're not out to harm you. Now, whether or not you're inclined to tell the world all your secrets, or you may be one of those individuals that, as they say, or have said, play everything, hold everything, play your cards close to your vest so nobody gets to see them, there's always somebody. And there's always a moment at time, too, when you really do need to talk. <laughs> Just be careful, because you never know. But if they're using this person you've chosen to talk to, and it may not be a stranger, it could be a friend. But maybe you've never gone into this level of communication or intimacy, a revelation, revealing yourself to them. But when people start to use words like, well, mm, you know... They start to demonstrate disfluencies. They're stumbling over something. And that something may be just that idea that somewhere in all of it, they themselves are having difficulty, comparably so, revealing themselves, sharing themselves in that same way you're wanting to. But maybe they are sociopathic. Or maybe in their decision not to share, they've discovered, oh, you know, it's like $500 laying on the sidewalk. And it's dropped out of the fellow's pocket that was walking in front of you. Nobody carries cash these days, so I'm not sure where this is coming from. But instead of saying, oh, mister, you dropped your wallet. You just take the wallet, take the $500 out of the wallet, and put the wallet in the trash. <laughs> now, I'm not encouraging that. 
But many good people probably have fallen prey to a temptation of lesser importance or lesser stature. And that's just the way we are. It takes work. (laughs) And maintaining that balance between being selfish and self-serving and truly being then pro-social. I don't know if it's altruistic, but pro-social. But regardless, if they're stammering around or there's this disfluency, you might want to at least think, Ooh, something's going on. We're not really connecting. And if I'm giving them all of this and I'm filling in all the narrative, I'm really not finding out much about them. And true empathy and perspective taking, as with communication, there's always a degree of protection that goes with that until you're confident. But empathy is seeking out the other person's perspective on a feelings level and a thought level, perspective taking. But hopefully, if it's of sound relationship principle, if it's going to even remotely approach a highest order of relationship that goes along with significant others, you're going to find out they're really not liars, cheats, or thieves. And they're keepers, and those are rare to find. Hard to find, difficult to find these days. Then both parties need to be working toward that. And so if you're stumbling around together, maybe that's not so bad. Keep working on it. It's just not time to go into the deeper stuff. But if it's all one-sided, also be aware. If you're filling in all the gaps, which is our inclination, there's maybe going to be some working of things out or reconciliation. When you get to the end of it, maybe it's going to be like, again, that Saturday Night Live skit. The absurdity of that will not show itself until you realize, you know, maybe the joke's on you. Now, I would never think that you're worthy of that or that certainly I would never want to encourage anybody to put the joke on you or make you the the joke. But there are a lot of individuals out there who might try to do that. Even if they do that innocently, it's better on you than them, I suppose. And that goes along with that whole selfish dimension, that narcissism. So, well... Mm, you know, we really are saying more than you think. We may not like to hear placeholder words, but we get more information from them than we realize. And again, who wrote the article in Psychology Today, December 2022? Hans Rutger Bosker, PhD. And what are you listening to? You're listening to Word with Dave Clay. And... Hopefully that's not a placeholder word. I want to invite you back to the next edition of our podcast with this intent in mind, or at least intention. I want to share everything I know, if I can, in the most appropriate ways to help you, whomever you might be, wherever you might be, regardless of whether we're doing it in a more formal sort of way, psychological counseling, or whether we're just doing it in the manner that we are, Of course, with the more formal way, there'd be a lot more intimacies and certainly it'd be much more specifically directed towards you. And though the podcast tends to be in more general sort of terms, hopefully there's enough relatable aspects of it uh, that we can connect and you take something away, (laughs) good, away with you as you've listened to it. 
And in the end, I hope all of that, whatever good you take from the podcast, really accomplishes that purpose of bringing you not only good health, but good mental health. So until next time.